Hey Jewish fans and fans of Jews, Michal here. I just wanted to let you know that we had a few hiccups with this recording, so the final version will be a little choppy. Our amazing editor, Jamie, did an awesome job piecing this back together, and we think it was a really great conversation, so we hope you enjoy. Welcome to Nice Jewish Fangirls, a podcast where three Orthodox women discuss all of the wonderfully nerdy things that we're obsessed with. My name is Michal Schick, and I'm your host, and I'm joined by my wonderful co-hosts, Tamar Herman. Hello. And S.M. Rosenberg. Hi. And we have a guest on this week. We have with us the uh, very prolific Avishai Weinberger, uh, writer, horror person, scary filmmaker. consultant, etc. Filmmaker. Scary consultant. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Pleasure to be here. Yes. Welcome, Avishai. It's, it's, it's really great to have you. I think for like two or three years, I've been like, we have to get Avishai on around Halloween to like talk about scary and then we just never did. So um, it's it's wonderful to have you on the podcast. As always, though, we're going to get started first with our current obsessions. I'm going to go first and just say that um, because I don't want anyone to steal it, even though I, I don't think you will. But like my current obsession is The Return of the Thief by Megan Whelan Turner, which is the final book in the Queen's Thief series that came out on Tuesday. And I was not going to start reading it until this Friday night, which is the um, start of the end of the Sukkot holiday, and then last night, I last night was the uh, vice presidential debate, and I just couldn't bear to go downstairs, and I kind of picked it up, and I was oh, like, God. "Oh, oops, I read fifty pages." <laughs> 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 and uh, yeah, I'm just I've been thinking about those fifty pages like nonstop. Yeah, so I I I am just did full of feelings, <laughs> and I've 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 had the Queen's Thief series as my obsession multiple times i think on the show and i don't care <laughs> i just like it's it's so sublime i reread them all you know in the lead up and and every time i reread it i find something new i like it more i just drive myself crazy wondering how it could possibly be adapted for netflix or something and that's <laughs> impossible but you know uh, a girl can dream so uh yes uh, that'll probably be my next one too because I, I don't think i'll probably have stopped thinking about it but <laughs> did, you, did you did you finish it i haven't oh I'm no waiting. no i only read 50 pages and then i was like oh. i have to stop because i will finish this i'm waiting for my copy but my sister has my my books so i'm like not gonna reread the rest of them and i feel like i'm gonna miss a lot of things like i'm gonna forget a lot but it's okay well That's it's it funny because i I forgot how unnerving it is to read one of her books for the first time because it's really like you're very hyper aware of like what's go what's 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 going on and what's really going on and what am, what am I being told? She's hiding like fifty balls. Yeah, exactly, and and just who who is. Is this is what this person says true, and is their perception right, and are they understanding the politics correctly, and a whole bunch of things? But Michal, I'm so happy that you have you get to live through another existence of this book. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So that is my current obsession. Uh, Avishai, as our guest, why don't you go next? Sure. Um, are, are any of you familiar with this Australian show called Wentworth? I've heard of it, but I know nothing about. it. I was like, someone just wrote about that on Twitter, and then I was like, oh, right, it was, it was obvious. <laughs> I mean, it is my current obsession. Uh, I, I've been <laughs> watching this show for a while, and the eighth season just dropped. And basically, 
It's a modern remake of a like a 70s and 80s uh, soap opera from Australia that ran like 700 episodes. Um, and how they uh, they've remade it as like prestige TV, like 10 episode seasons. And it's 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 a women in prison drama. It's very soapy and really just high tense drama. And as trashy as it can sometimes get, it can also really rise to some interesting dramatic levels and it's impossible to look away. So once you start binging, suddenly your week is gone and you're out of episodes and you don't know where the time went. So I'm I'm in the middle of that uh that um, malady right now. Ooh, very cool. And it's that's on Netflix? It's on Netflix. Yeah, I, I think it, it was originally in Australia for a few years without coming to America and eventually when it hit Netflix, it started finding an audience here, and I think that might have given them a few more seasons over there. Mm. It's really intense. It's really intense, and it's hard to put down. Is it like an Orange is the New Black, like, kind of tragic comedy type thing? Or is it very intense drama? It's uh, it's kind of Orange is the New Black, but it leans more towards drama. Like, it, it, it's basically every contrived soap opera kind of conflict you could imagine with various subplots running and, you know, protagonists coming in and out of the show and just bizarre left turns and the kind of things that would ever just sort of, if they were going for realism, it would probably be a little, little, little bit more relaxed than this. But this is apparently just every insane thing that could happen in a prison happens on this show. And the characters are really engaging and it's a lot of fun. It's also really stressful, and I don't know why I'm watching it now of all times, and yet. <laughs> do, do they all have Australian accents? This is the important question. They all have Australian accents. Amazing. Every last one of them. Now I need to watch. <laughs> I wouldn't have called that from an Australian <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's my, that's my current obsession. Awesome. So, Tamar, how about you? It's, it is an obsession, as in I started watching it, like, maybe a day and a half ago, and I already finished it. So I, that would count, <laughs> yes. And I didn't, I didn't expect to. It was Emily in Paris. If anybody has seen the dialogue, like, you, people either yes. like hate it, or they're, like, very entertained by the hate and just watching it, because it's, like, it's an amusing, carefree show in 2020 about this dumb Chicago girl who's very smart, but she has all her, like, life plans really rigid and she has to pick up and go to to Paris for really random reason for like the most absurd reason and go happen to work at a very like fancy marketing firm in Paris and it's a whole disaster uh I just went to Paris a few months ago and I fell in love with it and so this was like fun to watch also somebody else falling in love with it but her perspective was a little bit like really American and really silly like not even I don't know, like a lot of stuff was going on and flying, but it was really entertaining and really just kind of a fun getaway in the middle of 2020. It was cheesy. So many times I was texting my friend who had told me, like, give it a chance. I was texting her. I was like, why is she with this guy? She's messing with her friendship. Don't be into the guy who your friend is dating. Your friend is nice. Like all this stuff. And like, what is with this stuff? Like all this really random stuff. But it was just kind of. Uh, I like obsessively watched it. I went to bed watching it and I woke up and watched it and I was actually late to therapy this morning because I forgot that it, I had a, a therapy call and I was like watching Emily in Paris. So you know it's good <laughs> if you miss therapy for it. And it was just really entertaining. Uh, I, I like Lily Collins as an actress so it was nice to see her, the French team on it. I don't, I'm, I have to like Google and see if they're actually French or if it's like, you know, like French Canadians or just Americans putting on French accents, who really knows? It was entertaining. It was good fun. I think that's kind of what, you know, I want in 2020. I'm, I'm not really into, no offense, obviously, I'm not really into, into like 
uh, prison dramas in 2020. <laughs> uh, I had just watched Schitt's Creek too, so like that's kind of where my mindset is. Like Schitt's Creek and Emily in Paris, and I'm actually. I told you, I think I told you guys, I'm moving to Hong Kong next week. So Yay. it was, oh, wow. it was, yeah. So it was kind of like fun to watch and be like, shoot, I'm going to feel the exact same way as this girl, like going into an office. I don't speak the language. My office is uh, an English speaking workplace, but even so, so I was like, at least I'm not dealing with French people. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I do like French always people. Be worse. Small mercies. Like, like I'm, I do like a lot of French people. I had a really, I had really great experiences in Paris with wonderful French people helping us out and stuff and just, you know, getting to know them. But I know going into a workplace in another country is always really intense. So just like watching her struggle, I was like, well, at least I won't do that. So it was kind of fun and kind of nice because I got to experience both those things this year, falling in love with Paris and going to a new job in a new country, or I will get to experience both of them. So I, it felt it very much resonated with me. I think I had a different experience watching this show than most people did. Cause like it was very, it felt very personal, even though at the same time it was a ridiculous show and like so much privilege and it was just such a mess. So I understand why people don't mm-hmm. like it, but I was very entertained by it. I was, I don't know if I was entertained by it as much as like it was remotely entertaining in 2020. So I just kept watching cause I didn't want to leave tw- that like bubble. Oh, our standards are mm-hmm. definitely different. <laughs> There's no question about that in my mind. SM, what is your current obsession? So I'm going to swing the pendulum back to terrible, horrible, you know, TV shows. (laughs) Um, So as we're recording this, the season finale, I believe, of The Boys is going to air tomorrow. And by air, I mean Amazon has been putting them up one week at a time. And like they, they dumped the first three, I think, episodes, and then they posted the rest weekly on Fridays. And oh my god, this show, it's like, so I understand people want escape, and I totally want escape, and like, that's what I do with most of my time. Like, most of my entertainment is just reading, you know, fluffy fanfiction where Iron Man and Captain America hook up, and it's great, and everything is perfect. But this show gives you that, it gives you that catharsis of, yes, the people who are making this show see the world the way that we see it, as the current trash fire that it totally is that the highest offices in the land are trying to tell us it is not. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> so I feel like there is, I think I made this comparison on Twitter that it's like the Game of Thrones of the superhero genre in that it is centered around really terrible, terrible superheroes and terrible, a terrible society that has empowered all of these superheroes and people die gruesomely and there is so much gore and terrible things, but there's- That I've heard. Yeah, so I, I don't know that Game of, Game of Thrones doesn't have, I mean- I don't think that Game of Thrones had all the nuances of this. I don't f- think that, like, I didn't. I was never that into Game of Thrones, full confession. <laughs> um, I don't think I even made it to the Red Wedding. But there's an element of satire in this. But it's just more intense than Game of Thrones because it is so close to our own reality. The difference is that there are superheroes. And then it takes the darkest possible interpretation of what would happen if people had superpower, which is that they could be, you know, drunk on power and do whatever they wanted and have no accountability and have an entire publicity machine working for them. And they would be, you know, figureheads to sell all the things that anybody wanted to sell. And they would just, yeah, just the fucking worst. And 
obviously, if the show was actually about the terrible people and they were the protagonists, I don't think I would have the stomach for it. And it's very much not about, you know, turning them into anti-heroes. It's not like a House of Cards sort of thing where you're, you know, in in the worst characters and just like wondering how this is all going to turn out you're they give you you know actual people worth rooting for who are not perfect but it's like they're very clearly better than the other guys <laughs> and they you know their cause is their cause is righteous um and there are a couple of like the real hearts of the show yeah uh, are character named Huey and this character named Starlight and Huey is just like your average joe who is thrust into all of this and is just you know pure cinnamon bun and Starlight is an actual superhero with good intentions and wants to save the world and wants to help people and sees that as her mission in life. And then she's thrown into this world where she realizes that everything, you know, has been a facade and nothing that the superheroes say they stand for, they do stand for. And yeah, and then you just are rooting for, you know, the good guys to eventually take out the bad guys. But the characters are all really interesting and the writing is really sharp and the uh there's a current behind the scenes show that they have right now called Inside the Boys where they interview after every episode another one of these goes up and they talk about the episode with some people in the cast and some people from behind the scenes like the costumer and the writers and the directors and they are very open about how the show is, you know, very political and how, you know, this awful hero character was very clearly, you know, based on, you know, the kind of toxic masculine weakness, you know, that you see in uh, in Donald Trump and how, you know, he needs everybody to love him and he's desperate for everybody to love him and nobody actually cares about him <laughs> and he draws, he draws all his power from people liking him, but he has no actual human connection. It's just really cathartic to watch when something when, you know, you feel like this is expressing a lot of how you feel when you look at the current. And it's also just, yeah, ridiculously entertaining and sometimes extremely funny. And there's there's a there's an Israeli actor who is playing a French character. So when you mentioned like people doing fake French accents, um, mm-hmm. that's what I thought of. But um, his name is Tomer Capone and he's fantastic. He was on Fauda. Yeah, he was on Fauda and he's been in uh, various different uh, Israeli entertainment and now he's like, they like, like crossover move. Yeah, and I really want him and Gal Gadot to be in a movie together and <laughs> just, just be really awesome and Israeli and possibly criminals. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> But he's like an ex-paratrooper, so like, it's just got, like, he's got all this badassery, but also he, uh, in like, the interviews that I've seen, and also just like on the show, he's this just big old marshmallow. It's like the kind of like Israeli surfer dude sort of thing going Aww. on, so mm-hmm. it's nice. Yeah, but I've I've talked like three times as long as anybody else has talked, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, the boys is great, so it warrants it. I can't shut up about it. <laughs> the boys. It's like Game of Thrones, but better. Yes. <laughs> I should have just left it at that. When the first season came out, I remember people being like, ugh, this is so misogynist and gross and blah, blah, blah. And then this season rolls around and suddenly everyone I know is watching it and they're loving it. And I'm like, oh my goodness, okay. I don't know that I have the... They said it was misogynist? That was their comment on the first season, so I don't know, maybe... I don't know. I I can see, like, there was, you know, a major character that was fridged, a major female character that, I mean, as major as you can be, it'd be being in only one episode for about ten minutes, but 
you know, a girlfriend was killed to motivate a man. And so I can see that, like, you know, that premise could get to you. But, like, there's so much else going on. And, like, oh my god. Uh, But this season, for sure... They've introduced more female characters that have bigger roles, or like they they gave char- female characters for, that had been in the first season but hadn't gotten as much airtime have gotten a lot more this season. Like I said, the acting and the writing is just really sharp. So like even the characters that you hate, their scenes are just electric. Cool, cool, cool. Reminds me a little bit of Umbrella Academy season two, which was a vast improvement. I have to give that another try cuz I uh fell asleep during the first episode and I just <laughs> never got into it. <laughs> it gets better. It really does. Okay. I like season 2 a lot. All right. So we are going to move on to our main topic. So obviously the main reason we wanted to have you on is because you are a horror writer by trade and you write scary things. You talk about scary things. We've had several discussions about horror and it's identity and place and i think you briefly had a twitter like account that was called is it horror do you still run that my sister ran that and it's uh, called uh it, it is horror and it's about affirmatively uh labeling things horror that people might say i'm not sure that this is horror yes but yes it this is, is horror. My, my question <laughs> one of my major questions that we will get to <laughs> awesome so well the first thing i wanted to ask you is i think a question that maybe a lot of people have are not into horror which is why (laughs) why why is horror why do people enjoy that that genre i mean it's a it's a good question and there are a lot of people who don't enjoy it but as for why people do it's kind of a mixture of things right like there is just the visceral component of it's kind of like riding a roller coaster and you get your heart rate up and you feel alive and you know all, all of that kind of fun stuff of experiencing a visceral thrill if you want to get more psychological than that though it's it's basically it's a tool to help us cope in a way i'm going to get really pretentious for a second uh, so please go please. ahead raise our tone <laughs> like really pretentious okay so aristotle right yes heard of him yeah he's you know he's he's, he's a guy he was mentioned on the good place that's how i <laughs> right he had he had, a, he had a cameo um basically he in poetics when he talks about story structure and the sort of hallmarks of a good play in ancient greek times he gets a little bit into why we enjoy plays why we why we're sort of wired to enjoy stories and part of that and part of his answer is by experiencing basically a fake version of a real thing, we can assess how we would handle that situation. We can learn how to behave in certain situations and what kind of choices to make and what morals are good and what morals are bad. And basically everything that, if you are in the actual moment dealing with those things directly instead of kind of at a remove where you're feeling more versions of those feelings, but not necessarily those feelings themselves. If you're in the moment, you might not be thinking about these things so much. You'll just be thinking about the here and now and focusing on the moment. By having that remove, you kind of internalize a little bit more about how you would behave in certain situations. And it's how we learn without having to, you know, actually get hurt in the process. It's a safe way to learn. And horror is basically a safe way to get to the darker side of life. You know, there are situations that we would never wish upon ourselves or others, but they do happen, and they happen to, you know, everybody experiences these things. Horror is a way to basically jump in the deep end without endangering yourself and kind of immunize yourself to those feelings. And, you know, you pick up situational awareness uh, based on how characters act in, you know, certain awful situations that you would hope to never see in real life. 
and you pick up emotional coping mechanisms, essentially, for these kinds of things. And that kind of translates out. So there was an article, I don't know how scientific this is, it could just be clickbait, but it was, you know, it was being shared around quite a bit, that posited that horror fans were really prepared for the pandemic. You know, when it was announced, there's this awful virus going around, and it's, you know, it's killing a lot of people, and you want to wear a mask and be safe. I don't know how true it is that horror fans were more prepared, um, but there was this great video that went around, um, put together by Michael Doherty, who uh, directed the recent Godzilla movie and also had done some horror um, lower-budget movies before that. That's just a montage of clips from famous and less famous horror movies kind of arranged to make it seem like it is following the narrative of COVID. Um, and it was labeled something along the lines of everything I needed to know about the pandemic I learned from horror movies. <laughs> And it's great. I, I really recommend that. I'll try to find a link for you. Um, but it's, but it, it's true. I mean, it's, it's all about dealing with both the things that you hope to never experience and finding a way to relate to the things you have experienced and putting them into sort of these exaggerated terms with enough of a distance without, without necessarily putting them down. You know, like there, there is something kind of empowering of media that tells you, actually, you're right. Things are as bad as they as they seem or they or things can be as bad as you think and you're not crazy and this is true and life can be rough and there's you know it can be catharsis to experience that kind of a thing so that's my long-winded way of saying that i think that horror is important and we should show it to children as young as two years old (laughs) (laughs) um just this is why i think the boys is horror even though people don't talk about it like that oh the boys gets into horror yeah (laughs) for sure it's like yeah, so I was like my, about like where is the line between having horror elements and being horror? That's a yeah. that's a question. Yeah. But are you saying that like if more people watched horror, we wouldn't be living in a hellscape right now? Would we have been able to, you know, prevent <laughs> this entire dystopia, not just COVID, but like all of the events leading up to it? <laughs> no, that would have been if we weren't so whatever. Yes, if we weren't America. Red news, red news in other countries and actually trusted what other countries were, whatever. I'm really mad yes. about that. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I would say horror is not about helping you necessarily avoid these things. It's more about kind of saying these things happen and here are ways to handle them when they do on an emotional level. But like, a clown's gonna come and murder me? That sort of thing has happened. Well, but there have been situations where you might have felt that you were being followed or watched or somebody was out to hurt you, uh, somebody you knew or somebody you didn't know. Or you might have heard, like, there was a neighbor of yours who... Not you specifically, but, like, you know, hypothetically. <laughs> like, a neighbor the of yours who... You. Yeah, <laughs> proverbial you. A neighbor of yours who was just living at home and, you know, having a normal afternoon and then somebody broke into this person's house and murdered them. And just sort of the shocking randomness of it. And basically, a horror kind of tells you like these things do happen that like things can get bad and let's put you through the paces so that you've kind of so that even though you haven't been there and you don't necessarily bear the brunt of trauma that you know is sort of scarred onto your brain as a result you've been there to a degree and can and when these things happen you can kind of frame them a certain way based on what you've what you've uh, experienced virtually it's it's it allows you to frame these things uh, and then in, in some in some situations it does you know give you situa- situational awareness you know if the, if you think that there's a there's a killer in that house don't go in the house there's you know in the movie Alien um, people kind of 
didn't really talk about it so much until this year, and then everybody was talking about it. The entire movie could have been prevented if the characters listened to Sigourney Weaver. Yes, listen to Ripley. <laughs> listen to Ripley, where like the you know the uh, astronauts um, you know go outside and Kane gets a, a parasite on his face, and they all want to come back into the ship, and she's the one on the ship. It's like the rules say no. <laughs> yeah, the rules say no. There's a quarantine procedure for a reason. It's possible that this will hurt us, and then you know somebody else overrules her, and they come in, and then you know they all get wiped out, and we watch that, and in the moment we're feeling, wow, this is scary, and well, you know, I um, I have I feel like I've been to hell and back, but in the back of your mind, you're also like quarantine noted. <laughs> yeah, but that didn't really work for us. You know, nobody really listened to that America's quarantine stuff. So. <laughs> <laughs> so we're all, the ones of us who are quarantining are Ripley and the rest of everybody else is just not Ripley. Well, I, I guess it would be whether you see yourself as the protagonist of the horror movie or one of the people who gets killed <laughs> off in the second act. Yeah, then you can have like Life, the movie Life that I mentioned in a previous episode, which was basically like a more, you know, more recent take on on Alien of being trapped in a, uh, in a, in a, a spaceship station with uh with an alien that is going to kill everybody that movie the what i liked about it more than alien was that the characters were acting more responsibly like they were professionals and they were trying to follow protocol but it didn't help so that's for the kind of situation where like there are factors outside of your control that even if you you know follow the rules sometimes bad things happen and i guess that's a, a more useful metaphor for this situation well that's i mean that's a huge staple of the genre right like as much as you have movies where there's one sane person saying you fools <laughs> don't you see what's going on and, and nobody else believes them and, and they, that causes their doom there are a lot of stories uh about people who are as prepared as they could possibly be as anybody could possibly be and it's not enough like the purge I haven't seen it yet, but, like, from what I understand is, like, there's a rich family and they've barricaded all of their security in their, you know, giant house and they're ready, you know, to withstand the <laughs> night and the criminals, they get in anyway. Yeah, I, I will say that the characters in The Purge, yeah, are not as prepared as they probably should be, but <laughs> neither here nor there. But, like, going all the way back to H.P. Lovecraft, who, you know, much as he was a racist dirtbag, um, he was also a, you know... A pioneer in the genre and a major theme that he keeps coming back to is humans are small and the scope of the universe is just vast and it will and it is older than us and it will outlive us and there might be things in it that are that see us as nothing and there's nothing you can do about it and that kind of bleak hopelessness on one hand it could be a real downer on the other hand there's something kind of freeing about it of like knowing like it's possible that you did nothing wrong like when things go wrong it's not your fault it's just the fact that sometimes things are bigger than you and then how do you deal how do you cope with situations where you are really just helpless in the, in the scheme of things it's not like we've experienced that you know of the four of us <laughs> it's not like we're experiencing that every day of our lives well we're not living in a horror movie now at all not at all everything's entirely within our control but you know as much as it's helpful to have stories about here's how to take back control it's also helpful to have stories saying yeah, look, sometimes you don't have control and it sucks. I mean, I'm thinking about um, the movie uh, Predator, uh, the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie Predator, which is basically, what if Alien, but everybody in that film was just a hyper badass, super militarized soldier who could bench press a truck and is just the most capable fighter in, you know, in the known world. 
and it wasn't enough. As entertaining as it is, it's also something kind of sobering about it and something you can kind of take home in your life. It's like, look, they, they couldn't handle it. So like there are things that we can't handle and that's okay. Just do your best. So I, I'm going to, I guess, ask, because we've been talking about this and, and I have now gone down a YouTube hole of watching <laughs> things. About, I, I, I have that thing that some people have where like a horror movie comes out and like I need to know what happens in it. So I, I like wait for the Wikipedia entry to be filled in. And like it's, it's I don't know why, but I but I do um, <laughs> just watch so the I, movie. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> so you're worse than my friend who has to look up who ends up together every single show that she watches. She just can't watch that. Yeah, no, my, uh, that is worse because I have no. I, I I'm not watching these movies, but like, but my 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 interest is basically like you know you. I've I've been watching a lot of videos about these movies and they include clips and like some of it's very disturbing and gory and you know like like forget I guess lessons or or whatever but I think when people think of horror they one of the things they think about is kind of maybe gratuitous gross like just things that you you hope don't exist and like I I'm curious why you think people go for like body horror and that kind of thing well the genre is really varied and has a lot of breadth to it and i think part of why we why we get into body horror is if if the whole point of horror is to feel unsafe our bodies are all we have you know to a degree right and the idea of losing control of your own body in one way or another you know, in some ways, the ultimate horror. Sometimes there's something to be said for exploring that. It's like, okay, there's a part of, there's a part of, there's a concept that we're not really, in, you know, willing to take a look at because it is so abhorrent to us. The idea of, you know, our body failing us or our body coming apart or our body being usurped. There's a reason we can't take a look at that. So let's take a look at it. Let's do it in a safe forum where nobody's actually getting hurt and really kind of get to the bottom, bottom of it. And, you know, sometimes it really is just facing that fear. And sometimes there's, you know, more of a message to it. Like the Jeff Goldblum, The Fly movie by uh, David Cronenberg, which is about, you know, Jeff Goldblum's a scientist. He creates a transporter and uh, there's a fly in the transporter. And when he tries the, you know, to test it out, he gets fused with the fly and slowly but surely turns into this disgusting fly creature. It, it's. I feel like I have seen pictures. It's really intense. It's a remake of a 1950s film, uh, which was a little bit less intense, where he just comes out the transporter and has a fly head, um, which is also great in, in in its own way. But the this movie goes the extra step of really just de devolving him into this gross, you know, creature that just is no longer him. And I I've seen that referred to as a metaphor for AIDS. You know, the AIDS epidemic was was going on at the time, and here is a story about a person who is just slowly deteriorating you know like let's let's explore these real concepts where people actually do succumb their bodies do succumb let's explore it in a way where there's just enough remove it's enough it's just fantastical enough but unflinching so we're not pretending it's less serious than it is in fact let's make it more serious just you know exaggerate it so that we can see the full scope of it and kind of stare it down and then survive it you know the movie ends and we keep going and we've had that experience hmm, interesting this is a lot of how i feel about romance reading romance is all like <laughs> well for me that's horror you know let's explore these interpersonal dynamics in a safe place where nobody gets hurt you know like totally there's like that's 
I think I mentioned it on our, like, romance episode about, like, shipping a, a couple that is, like, not necessarily the healthiest dynamic. Why do people do that? But I like, feel like, you know, if you do that in a fictional setting, it gives you a way to explore those those potential dynamics and those impulses in a way that is safe and doesn't hurt anyone. Right. That's why That's why we've evolved to love story and tell story. It's so that in this sort of unreal arena we can we can experience things that either we want to experience or we don't want to experience without actually getting hurt with nobody getting hurt and when you come out of it you you know more you know either intellectually or emotionally than you did before you went in and it makes you just that much more prepared for the possibility of something like that happening you have something you can compare that thing to and you don't have to kind of grapple with it fresh when it happens you're a little bit more prepared why my dad is so it's so effective when my dad used star trek comparisons or harry potter comparisons because everybody knows what those are and can draw the parallels and they have some basis for comparison instead of just floundering for you know something in the void totally Hmm. something about horror also is that it's not necessarily just about the ideas that it's drawing like with the fly you know it's about you you can make the argument that it's about aids it's not about the science of AIDS or the process of AIDS. Like, you're not going to come out of it with that, you know, kind of knowledge, but you'll come out of it with sort of the re- relevant emotions, the reactions that you have to it. It's about preparing your reaction, your emotional reactions to these things. And that way, when you experience that emotional reaction, it's like, okay, this is kind of like how I felt when I saw this movie. It doesn't necessarily make you feel better, but it makes you a little bit less afraid that you do not understand what's going on, that you're somehow not reacting correctly, per se, you know? I feel like I need to watch more horror movies because I'm terrified of horror movies <laughs> and I don't watch any, but this conversation makes me feel like maybe if I watched them, I would be less terrified of life. Well, you've seen Train to Busan, which I hear is very scary. I hid behind a whole pillow and people were like, that's not a scary movie. And I was like, but it was scary. <laughs> it was oh, well, scary. wait, our question, one of our questions that spurred this interview was, is Parasite horror? That is a horror movie. I... I I will defend that. I can explain my thesis if you need me to. <laughs> <laughs> One of the hallmarks of, and not to generalize the cinema of you know as a whole country, but at least in the in the Korean films that I have seen there, and specifically the, the Bong Joon Ho movies that I've seen, there is this willingness to kind of cross genres, and not necessarily in a Venn diagram way where it's like this is both this and that, but to kind of switch in a way to kind of like. Like, now we're in the comedy train car, and we're just going to the next car, now we're in the horror car, and have that be jarring, and kind of have the full breadth of emotion within the thing. I saw I saw Parasite twice, and the first time I saw it was in a, in a, in a theater, the second time it was with my sister and her boyfriend. And they had not seen it. And without spoiling anything, there was a moment halfway through the movie where... They were incredibly on edge and they didn't know why, Uh, you know, these characters were just sort of sitting and talking and nothing was happening, but like you can tell that something's building. And then a doorbell rings. And as that scene progresses, they they start asking me, Avishai, is this, is this horror? Is this movie horror? And they had no idea what to expect. (laughs) And I, I, I think, I think it totally sort of shifts into horror territory. And I think that that's actually a very relevant and, and useful kind of horror, the kind of horror that sneaks up on you, because how often in real life do you expect it, you know? <laughs> and by the way, Train to Busan, I just watched that yesterday for a third time. I love that movie. What about Snowpiercer? I thought Snowpiercer was pretty, pretty 
clearly horror. I also love Snowpiercer. I don't think I could call that horror per se. I, I think that it it is more sort of science science fiction and action and drama and all that. I, I don't know if I'd really call it horror. Mm. And I, I could get into why, but it's a complicated feeling. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's a, like what it boils down to, I guess, is a question of ratios of like how much horror element, you know, compared to how much other genre elements are in the mix and like what outweighs what. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, it, it, with with most stories, I feel there's, you know, the goal of the protagonist um, and there's what's at stake, and there's how long they have, there's the urgency, how long they have to take to obtain that goal. And I feel that with horror, the emphasis is on the stakes, it's on the what you don't want to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in Snowpiercer, you have these characters in the back of the train who want to get to the front of the train, and there's a revolution. And it's really about what they want to accomplish, as opposed to what will happen if they fail. Because uh, what will happen if they fail? Like, you know, the, the soldiers amongst them who are defeated will be killed, the rest will be banished back to the back. With Train to Busan, you know, other Korean movie that is about characters on a train, the goal is to get from one station to the next. And the stakes are the lives of everybody on that train, the lives of everybody in the world, the lives of our... the, the life of our protagonist's kid. And those stakes are kind of slightly disconnected from the goal, right? If the goal is just get from point A to point B, generally speaking, the stakes of what happens if you don't get to point B is, well, then you haven't made it there. The stakes here are just completely overwhelming, and they overwhelm the priority of the the goal. It really just becomes about avoiding the stakes. And I think that that is a hallmark of many horror movies, if not all horror movies. Um, probably not all, because, you, you know, it's hard to fit genre in a box when genre is ultimately a marketing tool. But, in, <laughs> you know, if, if you were looking at it sort of academically, that is kind of a hallmark of it. Like, I think a person who is tied to a chair while a creature slowly slinks towards that person. And you and the person in the chair is unconscious, and you know that the creature is going to kill this person. Wouldn't really make for a great drama, but that's horror. Because it's not about what the character wants, it's about what you don't want to happen happening. That is a helpful perspective on that. I would like to take this moment to note that I didn't say anything about any of the Korean content on this episode. <laughs> this is not me nobody can blame me korean stuff is important to talk about nowadays it wasn't me well one of the things that been, that's been giving me nightmares is the little mini documentary i watched about a movie called the whaling which is a korean film and some of the footage they showed was very 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 scary <laughs> and it was actually even more scary because i was like Abishai, have you watched it <laughs> I actually haven't seen The Wailing yet. Yeah, so I couldn't be like, ah, this thing looks so scary. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't watch the movie. I watched the thing about (laughs) it. But why? Why did you watch the thing about it? I don't. I have this morbid fascination. Well, yes, I do have morbid fascination, but I also have this weird tendency to, when things are like scary in the world, watch or listen to horror things. Mm -hmm. And like. It's a measure of control. Yeah, I, I have some horror podcasts that I listen to um, that I, I find very scary, but I don't know. I, I, yeah. I feel like you're a case study of my thesis. Cause it's Probably. Like, you're not, like, you're not, like, a fan of horror movies. Like, you're not, like, excited for the next horror release and going to conventions and, like, et cetera, et cetera. But, like, you want, you want to experience those fears, even if you don't want to get too close. Yeah, but, I mean, it's weird, because, like, I, like, even, like, 
like I hate October. <laughs> like I, I, I used to be like, like I, I didn't like to go perm, you know, costume shopping because if you went to a to Party City or something, there would be the the Halloween decorations there and like the skeletons and stuff, and that stuff still terrifies me. But skeletons are so cute. I guess maybe my definition of cute is different from other people's. Possibly. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, well. Another question uh, I wanted to ask you, actually, is to pivot this more toward a uh, Jewish perspective. Um, And that would be kind of, what's the difference, basically, between horror and tragedy? Because Mm. you have, like, there's not 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 a lens in which you could view a lot of Jewish history as horror. You know, and I know there are some, I don't know if they specifically focus on, on Jewish topics, but, like, there are some movies about World War II that that definitely veer toward realistic horror in that in that sense to kind of break down what happened there. And then there are some fantastical ones like the J.J. Abrams movie that came out last year. Which movie was that one? Overlord. Overlord. Yeah, yeah, like I with the zombie Nazis and stuff. It's a fun movie. Uh, so the difference between horror and tragedy—it's that's that's a tough question, and I think I would assume it probably has something to do with point of view. Where I feel like what horror does is create extreme empathy by putting you in the perspective of the protagonist or in the perspective of somebody involved in that story and really just kind of putting it, putting you there and having you feel the things that are happening in the moment that they're happening. Whereas I feel like tragedy, there's, there's a little bit of a remove, I guess, maybe, where it's sort of about the facts of what happened as opposed to the experience of it happening and kind of the, the dread of it coming upon uh, coming across you because i feel like the the point of horror it's not even necessarily to scare you because there are horror movies that i would say are not you know don't really intend to scare you and horror movies that i think are scary somebody else will say aren't scary but they're still horror i think the point of horror is to make you feel unsafe um and i feel like tragedy is about bad things that happen to other people in a sense that you can look at and feel sad about somebody else if it's happening to you you're not sad, you're freaked out, you know? So I, I don't know if that's necessarily the best explanation, but that's the one I got off the top of my head. Hmm, that's very interesting. That would also, like, be relevant to the fact that a lot of the times Holocaust movies are, you know, don't center the Jewish victims. Sometimes they, you know, really just, you know, they, the Jews are just the kind of a prop, and, you know, the 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 story, the tragedy moves around them, but you're not in their perspective the same way as, you know, maybe, you know, well, we would like to see. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, Schindler's List is about a guy who's going to be safe through this, right? And we are seeing awful things happen to people, but he himself, he gets to watch all that happen from his, from, like, sitting atop a horse watching from a hill. Whereas, say, say, well, I mean, of course he does have, there are stakes for him, but he's not He's not targeted. Right. Meanwhile, like, the pianist... Um, with Adrian Brody, I would say does kind of become a horror movie because we're sort of put in the subjective space with him where we move around where he goes and the things that are ha- happening to him kind of feel like are happening to us. The, the, there's this like this scene where he basically comes back to the ghetto, I think, after it's been decimated. That stuck in my head. Yeah, and there's a scene where he's being fired upon by by allied soldiers who don't realize that he is not actually an enemy. 
And instead of kind of watching it from a remove, we're watching it with him as he's sort of dodging these things within this building that's falling, uh, you know, down on him. And it's really, you know, it's really scary and it's really unsafe. And we've identified so much with him and we don't have the benefit of sort of third person point of view that we can kind of step out and see the, the wider scale of things. We're stuck in there with him that I think kind of turns it into horror in that moment. Whereas, say, you know, in Jojo Rabbit. You know, I love Jojo Rabbit. <laughs> I, I, I adore that movie. And, you know, there is a Holocaust happening. But that's not horror because where are we? You know, we're, we're with this kid. And he, it's not happening to him. It's happening near him. And he does get to experience tragedy when somebody he cares about, you know, dies. But he himself isn't scrambling to survive. Yeah, like, there are a few scenes of, like, you know, tension of, like, will he be, be in danger, but it's not the same. Right. There's there's tension, there's suspense, but there's a line I read somewhere. It's like, good horror makes you think, great horror makes you stop. Um, where, you know, I do think that horror is probably the best genre at fostering empathy, just in, in terms of effectiveness, because it really puts you directly in the shoes of these characters who are going through this thing and what happens to them, you feel viscerally if done right, which is part of why we have such a low tolerance for dumb horror characters, because if they do something that we wouldn't do, that, that connection is broken. It's like, well, I wouldn't go back in that house. So the connection is broken. But when it works, the horror is essentially happening to you. You are transplanted into this character and experiencing what, what they're experiencing. And it's, uh, you know, it tends to be very subjective. Interesting. Because I am, I, I, one of the things I was thinking about was basically like if you, if you changed some of the cuts and basically added a different score to a lot of these, you know, a lot of Holocaust or movies like that, you know, you, you could just basically, like they would, nobody would question it as a horror movie, um, except that we're kind of primed to think of historical things in this, or at least modern historical things in a somewhat different category, mm-hmm. unless it's about a serial killer. <laughs> Yeah. Right. I just want to uh, say, just for the record, about the the pianist that, like, how, whatever we think of the movie, just important to mention that Roman Polanski is a child rapist, and we are yes. not promoting uh, his films. Yeah, yeah, I, I, it's it's such a rough thing to kind of like hold both of those ideas in our heads because, like, on one hand, he made one of the greatest horror films of all time, Rosemary's Baby, which is also like, according to many, at least one of the great feminist horror movies of all time. On the other hand, he's Roman Polanski. And, you know, you just have to kind of hold these ideas in your head simultaneously and just never lose sight of that. Like Harry Potter. Mm. Mm. I think the, the the thing is just, like, what what makes a contribution, you know, greater than the artist themselves is a subjective measure. And we kind of all have to, you know, feel that out for ourselves. Right. I mean, I, I'll say that my the way, the way that I try to navigate it, at least personally, is... It, you know, instead of, you know, separating the art from the artist or whatever, which I think is not a possible thing, or, you know, discarding the art, it's just kind of hyper-awareness. It's like multiple things are true at the same time. Rosemary's Baby is one of the greatest horror movies of all time, maybe one of even the best movies, if you want to go there. It is made by Robin Polanski, who did, who is a rapist. You know, it's one of those things where you just keep both of those ideas and have to be uncomfortable about it, and that's just how you have to go forward. Because you can't discard Rosemary's Baby. Yeah, it's like there's a difference between Harry Potter and whatever J.K. Rowling's new, you know, (laughs) transphobic book is going to be about. You know, like there's a totally different conversation around those two pieces of art. Right. Right. The the terror of the man in drag. It's, yeah. Which is a horror trope that they use. It is a horror trope. uh, In, uh, what is it? Silence of the Lambs. 
That's like right. the classic of it, that. Yeah, and it's funny because within that movie, they take pains to distance themselves from from transness, where you know you have this character who is trying to create a skin suit to become a woman, and then they have a scene where Hannibal Lecter kind of psychoanalyzes like he's not trans. He's got the, these delusions, but he himself is not actually trans. And it's funny that they put that in the movie because they could, they didn't have to, but they went out of their way. And I wonder, I wonder if that was motivated by not wanting to say this is a trans character doing these things for trans reasons, or if it was for some other motivation. But I do find that interesting. There, there are some movies that really fall prey to, you know, these terrible transphobic tropes like i'm thinking of a uh, terror train which was a an early jamie lee curtis horror movie um um that was like shortly after halloween it was sort of done on the cheap it's about these these uh high school students who decide to throw a party on a train in canada and have like a magician there for some reason it's like there's a killer in a, in a costume that's like you know killing people off and the big reveal at the end is that it is the person you thought was a woman is actually a man. And dun, dun, dun. and the way it's played is incredibly trashy and also just objectively poorly done. <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, I, I got to see a screening of it recently and it was such a howler when that moment hit where the whole audience just couldn't hold it because it's not done with any tact whatsoever. And, you know, it happens. Some There are, within every genre, there will be people who, uh, who mess up uh, poorly and have bad intentions and it just sort of becomes part of the canon of like oh yeah that's the transphobic film over there hmm. jamie lee's fine i think oh Jam- <laughs> jamie lee is fine and I, I and i think the rest of the actors are fine except for the fact that they can't act uh, but... <laughs> yeah i mean in general i don't blame actors for appearing in films because it's just how how they make their living and you know they're, they're doing their jobs and it's the people who shape the films that are much more responsible for those things and it was also, I mean, it was a, it was a cynically made movie. It was Halloween came out. We can make a movie for really cheap on a train in Canada. Let's just rush something out to make a buck. And you know, I can, I can I'm happy to look at those artists and say, hey, <laughs> that's not reputable. I, I'm thinking now about um, um, a Nightmare on Elm Street two, which is sort of. I've only seen the first one. Okay, the second one is such a strange film. It doesn't fit the template of the first one or the subsequent ones. It's about this boy who is sort of slowly overtaken by Freddy Krueger, the dream killer, um, from within, and sometimes, like, transforms into Freddy who goes and does murders, all, you know, all that fun stuff. It was kind of panned when it came out and has sort of picked up a cult following since then. The main thing that's interesting about it is it reads as an incredibly gay movie. And the lead actor at the time was closeted. There was this sort of long, quest, you know, many years question of, are the uh, gay undertones, let's call them overtones, it's really obvious <laughs> in the film, are they intentional? Is it just, you know, a coincidence? Or was it, like, was it meant maliciously or not maliciously? Like, what were the intentions behind it? And recently there was a documentary about the actor, the, the lead actor from that film, the, the boy who gets overtaken by Freddy, talking about the travails of his life and how when the movie uh, flopped, the screenwriter blamed it on him, saying he brought his gayness to the movie and turned it into something it wasn't meant to be. 
And then, and that kind of hurt his career, and he didn't really have a career since then. And then years later, when the movie kind of had a renaissance because people looked at it and says, huh, this, this is actually kind of fun to see these, you know, this sort of subtext in a Freddy Krueger movie, the screenwriter said, oh, yeah, I totally meant to, uh, you know, make this as a metaphor for uh, being gay in the 80s and fearing AIDS and fearing coming oh, out and like, all these things. So, like, in the documentary, the actor, is, he, he agrees to do the documentary on the condition that he can confront the writer and, get, like, get to the truth of what the writer was intending and why he did it and why he threw this actor under the bus. And eventually they have their, their moment where they talk about it. And the writer does his sort of non-apology of, like, I'm sorry you felt this way kind of thing. But he, he also said something that was... Kind of, kind of gross in its own way, which is in the '80s, people were afraid of of gayness because of AIDS, and were worried it'll somehow reach them. And he thought it would be a nifty tool to add sort of a layer of uncomfortableness to the movie for the audience, to sort of use, sort of weaponize homophobia to make the audience uncomfortable and unsafe watching the movie. And it's such a gross reason to do you know anything it's really terrible and at the same time it the movie has been sort of reclaimed by gay horror fans along with the babadook <laughs> the babadook was sort <laughs> that of was a, not a reclaimed funny, that was just straight up claimed i think <laughs> yeah well, that was because uh netflix briefly yeah. accidentally labeled it as an lgbt film and people thought that was funny but yeah, it became like, a with, meme with... <laughs> And in Elm Street too, it was it, you know it's so in the film, and even though it was intended as a sort of a bludgeon against gay people and sort of like m- making people afraid of it by saying, "Hey, you're afraid of gay people." Ooh, this movie is gay too. Be afraid of it. Um, it has been reclaimed by queer horror fans who have sort of turned it into a cult phenomenon, and there are these great posters that were sort of created and like you know these t-shirts that were made that are of the movie but it's like a pride flag it's like freddy i saw this great bit of art where it's freddy krueger's uh claws scratching through a surface and behind it is the rainbow flag and there's a tagline of last time he was in your dreams now he's coming out and people are having fun with it despite the intentions behind it and it's it's interesting to see how art can kind of leave its original intentions behind and its creators behind because people watched that and saw themselves in it, and it helped them understand themselves a little better. It's which is again the point of horror is to try to understand your situation or a situation that you've seen people in or a situation you might eventually be in. And if you're a horror fan in the '80s who is in the closet and you see this, it's like, huh, I recognize these feelings. So it, anyway, it, it was just an interesting thing to observe. So to go back to the Jewish thing for a second, um, <laughs> I. <laughs> Uh, I'm. This is something that you know. Again, sorry, Avishai and I talk a lot about this as a genre thing, um, and so I'm. I'm always kind of like, here's this idea and how to make it Jewish, and like I, I, I have this thought that like I don't know that that there might be like some kind of entryway into I guess modern Jewish life uh, through the horror genre. Obviously, that's an ironic thing for me to say, having rejected the horror already like six times in this conversation but i don't know like what, what do you think about that like I, I know there was that that there was a movie like called the golem or something that was it the golem there was a there was a golem movie recently it was yeah. from the director the director of jerusalem which is zombies attacking jerusalem there oh. was a golem in supernatural there was an episode there was a golem yeah <laughs> so i'm i'm rarely into that but i did read a review i think of that golem movie and 
the reviewer was like, there wasn't much personality in the Cossacks. <laughs> you couldn't really sympathize with them. And I was like, well, you may have missed the point. <laughs> yeah. I haven't seen the Golem yet, and I, I want to. I'm curious. I, I wonder, like, if it turns out that it is like the Cossacks are in that sort of position that, say, the white cops in Lovecraft Country are, then it's like, don't give them personality. Like, we need, you know, the experience. If it turns out that they're supposed to be full-fledged characters who are, like, having arcs and stuff and it doesn't work, <laughs> then that's just, you know, poor storytelling. But it really depends on what you're going for. Because, like, sometimes the point is we have an experience and it is a horror experience and we're going to put you in that experience. And that means not giving you the other side because we don't get the other side. Um, you know, like, you, there's no... Like, sometimes there's a point of... There's a horror thing. There's a, a, a horrific attacker... And they have an inner life, and you feel uncomfortable knowing about their inner life. And sometimes it's just, like in, in the movie The Strangers, um, which is a really intense horror film, um, a couple in a cabin are attacked by these three people wearing masks. We never see what their faces beneath those masks are. We never know their names. We don't know their motivations. And at one point, a character asks, why are you doing this? And they just say, because you were home. And that's it. And we don't have any of the motivation. And I think there's something to be said for a story that's sort of a cultural experience that kind of puts our real-life attackers in that position of, you don't know the horror of, like, you outside this community don't know the horror of being attacked by people and not, you know, being, not, not, have, not being privy to their side, just experiencing their attack. There's, there's use to it. There, you know, it, it, there is value of that artistically because, yeah, get, I mean, Get Out definitely has that. Get Out is, you know, it, it, it's more about sort of the insidious kind of attack because it's slowly but surely reveals that these people who are being you know nice and polite and friendly are actually not and then there's lovecraft country where you do just have wave after wave of overt racist coming to kill you using magic you know for for people within that community you know it's validating it's like yes that's what we experience and for people outside the community it's like oh that's that's what they experience and there is there is value in that on sort of all sides and it depends on if it reads as authentic, like you could do that kind of thing and make it feel cynical. And then it's just like, okay, well now they're trying to manipulate me to feel something that isn't true. But if you can get that authenticity in there, which is why, you know, I wouldn't trust a non-Jewish person to write a horror story about what it's like to be a Jew experiencing, you know, anti-Semitism. You mean we shouldn't give that to Mel Gibson? <laughs> <laughs> mm, is, is Mel Gibson doing that? Uh, Mel Gibson is right now playing Santa. But like a dark, <laughs> a dark version of Santa. They're making a horror Santa, from what I can. I saw that. I, I, I saw that trailer. Um, I hope that movie doesn't become artistically relevant, because then I would have to hold on to it. <laughs> uh, but... You know what? I think your odds are decent. I don't know. It was. It was a. It, it was something based on the trailer. <laughs> that was something. But imagine if imagine if Mel Gibson of all people made a movie about he plays a Jew. And there are anti-Semites out to get him. I mean, he wanted to imagine? make a movie about the Hanukkah story. Right, so I wouldn't trust him with that. Like, did you guys see the Ridley Scott Moses movie? No. No. Okay, I watched it. That is a Moses movie made by a militant atheist. And it shows at every step of the way, almost to a hilarious degree. It's like, in that movie, Moses' is, um, defining, like, move. His signature move is big sword. And... He is portrayed as potentially schizophrenic and dangerous and not necessarily 100% in the right versus the pharaoh who is just 
doing what his culture has been doing and you know should moses be leading these people and giving them like new rules to control them and Oh, it's uh, so it's the other side of the slavery narrative. We've never seen that before. <laughs> <laughs> it's still in Moses's point of view, but it depicts but it depicts Moses as this barbaric person. And, oh, great! So Paro basically, well, actually, so. <laughs> <laughs> kind kind of, and like they 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 sort of make Moses this terrorist, where instead of going to Pharaoh and saying let let my people go, he'll like you know, threaten him in the middle of the night with a sword, or he'll send, like, a horse branded with his demands. That sounds to the like castle. Moses. And, and <laughs> that's our Moses. And, and the plagues. I gotta tell you, the plagues are designed to be, like, scientifically plausible. So, like, you know, the the splitting of the seas, which is, you know, just a normal tsunami that kind of slowly happens. And the blood, the plague of blood is alligators get into a frenzy and like eat some people and there's blood in the water as a result <laughs> and this is and this is all intercut this montage is intercut with a scientist explaining to pharaoh how this is all happening yeah. and then pharaoh is like gets kind of fed up with him because this guy suggests that there might be such a thing as bacteria and so pharaoh executes this um this scientist and meanwhile moses is like teaching the jews how to fight like a militia uh and when when you know plague of the firstborn happens there's this big moment where, like, Pharaoh goes to Moses and all of his warrior Jews, and Pharaoh is holding his dead baby rubber doll and saying, what kind of a god would do this to our children? And it's, that is a Jewish story told by somebody who has disdain for religion in total, and he's taking it out on the Moses story. And it's a fascinating thing to watch, because there are some interesting ideas in it, like the idea of now that the Jews are in the desert, like there is a concern that the people might not stay unified forever. How do we hold them? How do we keep them unified and therefore safe? It's like, well, we need to come up with the Ten Commandments. Like, that's interesting, but it takes the story away from our experience and, to, and off from our culture in a massive way. And that's why I didn't connect in part. Yeah, it's like it's it's a sort of tragic, you know, that, that like it's sad that we're on opposing sides, but here we are. Hmm. It's like, did the slave revolt go too far? <laughs> <laughs> hey, the Exodus, the Exodus movie goes there. It, you know, it, it throughout the plagues, it's really focusing on the suffering of the poor Egyptians. It's like they don't deserve this, and it's a, you know, a big thing about horror. I, I think is point of view matters. Whose story you're telling matters, and not to say that Exodus Gods and Kings is horror, but it sort of. Is Nikolai Coster Waldau in that movie? Was that with Christian Bale? Uh, no. Okay. Christian Bale. Christian Bale is Moses. Right, okay. I remember that. Um, he is a uh, angry warrior murderer Moses. Um, but um, <laughs> come on, I need that on a T-shirt. <laughs> he was in the. Uh, there was a different uh, right. There Egypt, was Egypt right. movie full yeah. of white people. Yeah. Um, but the uh, you know Exodus it tries to kind of distribute point of view and take all sorts of sides. And I feel like what horror. There's a line, I, I, I think it's John Carpenter had this line, he might have been quoting somebody else of like, you know, getting political for a second, just using his terms, there's liberal horror and there's conservative horror, where, you know, tribe of people, we sit at a fire, campfire, and there's the, the shaman of the tribe, and one story that he tells is he points out to the, to the, the dark trees and says, there are monsters out there, you have to be vigilant against the monsters out there. And the other story he tells is he points to himself and says there's a monster in here and john you know john carpenter who's this you know he, he is a master of horror it's not the master of horror he he describes that as sort of the difference between liberal and conservative horror of like what 
are we afraid of? But what's always relevant in those stories, in either version of the stories, is that there is a we. It is all rel- relative to ourselves. You know, are we afraid of the things that are out there? Are we afraid of what people are capable of, of what we ourselves are capable of? But there's always a we. There's a point of view. And that's the point of view that is feeling the fear. And the audience is put in that point of view. And I think that that is crucial. And so if you're telling a story that is meant to be cultural, you have to be careful about whose point of view you are taking and whose point of view you are putting the audience in because that's the empathy you're going to create. That's the, you know, the fear of that person, of that point of view is the fear that you want the audience to feel so that they connect with that, with that character, they connect with that group and can sort of take those feelings with them afterwards and have a sort of a stronger understanding of the kind of fears that others feel. Or, the, or if you're within that group, um, having a better understanding of the kind of fear that you feel or having something you can frame it with. Keep saying these smart things and I keep being like, yes, interesting. <laughs> well, we have actually kept you for quite a while, um, but I just wanted to ask you two more questions. One, one which is, what scares you? You know, it's, it's a really good question. I think sort of broadly, I'm afraid of loss of control um, of my life. And that can translate out into all sorts of different areas, but sort of the fear of the, the, the fear of sort of the world kind of collapsing on me and me having no control over it and that sort of inevitability. I know that's really vague, but it's but that's where, you know, that that's that's always what sort of scares me the most. Um, and so I try to translate that into things that I write. And also, I, maybe I should have reversed these because this is a much more boring question, but for people who are like, I don't like horror, but people keep talking about horror, should I get into horror? What, what would you uh, recommend as... A starter pack. Hmm. Um, I think there are, two, there are three avenues you could take. One of them is whatever the current pop culture thing is that's incredibly popular. Um, because yeah, movies, TV, know, books. I, I, that could be sort of more, even if it is scary, it could be a little bit more conventional and more designed to appeal to a broader audience um, than just people who are hardcore horror fans. So it might not be as intense as things get. So either that, um, like say a Stranger Things, you know, where it does. It, I, I, I think Strength Things is horror. Um, yeah, or Lock and Key. But it's also, or Lock and Key. Like, things that are... Um, by the way, the, the Lock and Key comic book is terrifying, I think. <laughs> but sort of culture that's designed to be scary, but also accessible. So that's one option. Second option is go to the classics. Like, go, go old. Go black and white. Watch the things that scared people then that might not necessarily get you now in the same way, but you would still understand why they have that impact. Like watch the original psycho watch night of the living dead from 1968, you know, black and white films. You could see how things were done. Um, You can see the seams and the effects, um, but, and you know, the kind of scares that are done in those movies, you know, even non-horror films have since, kind of cannibalized those and have referenced those so you'll have a solid understanding of those things and they won't shock you necessarily well well you would still understand that they are touchstones and that they are great for a reason and the third avenue is just jump in the deep end and find the scariest horror movie that you can get your hands on and just the most intense messed up thing because even then the thing you think might be the most intense messed up thing might not even be that um, it might sort of be a step along the way, or it might be the most intense messed up thing, and you'll be surprised by 
how high a tolerance you have for it. It's kind of like um, when you're standing on the edge of a particularly tall water slide, and you have that fear of, like, I can't go over this edge. Um, gravity will overtake me and I will splat. But then once you go over the edge, you get into a groove of it, and you know, you have the thrill and then it's done and then you keep going. So you might, you, you might surprise yourself or not. You might just tra- traumatize yourself, but I think it's worth the risk. <laughs> okay. Two things. So <laughs> the, the, the subgenre of horror that reliably gives me nightmares, um, it are, is the zombie subgenre. Um, and you know, there's plenty of schlock because mm, that's yeah, I mean, really, so like there's, girl there's with plenty all the, gifts. Of, the girl with all the gifts is great. Um, but you know, there's plenty of schlock out there with with the zombie genre because it is an easy enough thing to create. You just get some extras and mess them up a little bit and have fun. And the rules are so known, you, you can just sort of play within those. But there are some really strong zombie movies that do, you know, I will wake up from a cold sweat from a dream of being pursued by zombies. Um, it, there's something incredibly primal about that feeling. Um, so movies like uh, 28 Days Later or, or Wreck, uh, that's R-E-C, or yeah, girl with all the gifts that 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 got me. Um, so things like that. Or um, there is a ghost movie called Lake Mungo that I saw um, this year that is incredibly unsettling, and it is not a visceral, you know, they are chasing you and will eat your flesh kind of a movie, but it is the kind of thing that gets under your skin because it it deals with mortality. Um, it you know it, it's a ghost story. Um, and it's told documentary style, and instead of playing it for shocks, it, it plays it, you know, it plays it essentially for tragedy. Like, it, it lets it be heavy, but it gets heavy to a point where you start fearing it happening to you, um, in a sense, where, you know, that it sort of makes that switch from, you know, how bad is it that this happened to somebody else, to this is inevitable for everybody and it is incredibly unsettling and it, it, it ends on one of the most unnerving final notes of ar movie that i've probably ever seen so if you can watch that and you come out of it saying oh that's not so bad then maybe the genre is for you or maybe it's not maybe it means that it doesn't work for you at all it's so interesting about the zombies because like of all the genre things like zombies scare me the least because <laughs> like they just they don't feel at all real and most of the time they're very slow I don't know. There are sometimes there are fast zombies, but there's also very slow zombies. So yeah, so it's, <laughs> so it's interesting that like different people have different buttons. It also depends on what zombie movie you're watching. Because I've seen fast zombie movies that didn't get to me, and I've seen slow zombie movies that didn't get to me, and I've seen the reverse of both. It sort of depends on how it's played. Because mm-hmm. with slow zombies, the horror is the inevitability of it. Of how long can you outrun this? And that's sort of a, that's more of sort of like a dread. Uh, and I, I will say the original Night of the Living Dead, as much as you see through the scenes of it and you see the tricks of it, it does really hold up in a lot of ways, including the fact of like, you know, it is an oppressive wave that is coming for you no matter what. With Fast, if done well, you know, there's something really primal about you have to run for your life from predators that are faster than you and are in massive quantities and not, and they might not kill you they might turn you into one of one of them and there's something even ter- you know terrifying about that um so like movies like 28 days later which is i think maybe the best fast zombie movie just in terms of it is it, it is both you know it is effective both in the scary sense and also in the human sense like you really do kind of get a feel for um what it is like to be a person in that situation there was a miniseries by the creator of uh, Black Mirror, before he did Black Mirror, called Dead Set, 
that is kind of satirical, and it's about people in a Big Brother house who don't realize that the zombie apocalypse has occurred outside. And on one hand, it's it's really funny in that in that sense. On the other hand, it's unflinching, and you know it, that kept me up for a while. <laughs> so I, I don't know. It, it it depends on how it's pulled off because there are movies. Uh, in the genre that also just do nothing for me. Like, The Walking Dead doesn't give me nightmares. You know, as, as effective as that was for a while, um, that didn't really do anything for me. And then, uh, you know, there was a remake of Day of the Dead that was straight to DVD, and it was really bad, and the zombies are running everywhere, and they're cl- crawling on walls, and sometimes they're firing guns, and I'm just watching that thinking, this is just ridiculous. I'm not connecting with any of this because this isn't following a set of, this isn't following gravity. They are not falling towards me. They're just sort of doing their own thing. And the story was garbage. So, it, you know. <laughs> yeah, because like you can do surrealism, but like if the story doesn't really work, then it doesn't matter what you're doing. Totally. And also if the filmmaking doesn't work. Like there was a movie I saw, I think it was a French movie, that I would say the story is probably on the weaker side and it, it's, it, you know, it, it got mixed reviews when it came out. But it's also incredibly effective in a lot of ways with portraying the zombies. And, you know, it's about a guy who, you know, gets drunk at a party and passes out in a side room. When he, when he wakes up, he learns that everybody else has become a zombie. And once he manages to lock himself into one of into an empty apartment in this building, he sees that it's happened outside as well. And they're all kind of gathered outside and will stand still unless sort of like activated by a sound or, or motion and then they'll attack you. But the thing that makes it really unnerving is it does something i've never seen a zombie do before it makes the zombies silent they don't moan they don't shriek it's just complete silence but they act you know they're fast they'll they'll you know they'll attack you but you might not hear them coming uh and even if you see them and if you see them coming but they are also completely silent in the process something incredibly unnerving about that so it 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 depends on how you play it like i don't know if any of you have seen it follows i've heard about it but that was what i thought of when you mentioned like inevitability and like because it seems like that's a very slow you know moving adversary but there's no way to stop it oh yeah it's it's a silent slow moving metaphor for mortality (laughs) and it's you there's a demon and if you know it it will follow you and it could look like anybody or anything well, anybody specifically, and it's not going to draw attention to itself, it's not going to make any noise, it's just going to walk towards you in a very slow pace, and if it catches you, it'll kill you. But if you scan a crowd, you don't know who in the crowd it is, just keep an eye out if somebody's walking in your direction. And then, you know, there's the whole kind of fun of the the way you delay it from getting you is you pass it on to somebody else by having sex with that person and then once you get that person it's once you get that person then it's coming after you again and so it you know you can't hold it off forever but you're the only one who could see it also and that slow inevitability it's just walking it's not it's not even strolling it's just moving at this turtle's pace but it's really scary because you don't know where it'll come from um, or who it'll look like. And that kind of dread where your life isn't necessarily in immediate danger, but it could be at any moment. There's something primal about that. Oh, it sounds like the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, look, there's, there's a reason why there are so many pandemic horror movies. <laughs> oh, man. What would you recommend in that, in that uh, subgenre of horror? <sighs> well, does that, mean, does that mean movies that have been made in our pandemic, or... Like movies about pandemics. Movies about pandemics. There is one really good horror movie that was made during the pandemic. Ooh. Just for a second, talking about movies about pandemic. You know, it's it's more fun when the pandemic is metaphorized, like it is zombies, or it is creatures that hunt sound, or 
It is creatures that if you look at them, you die, so you got to stay inside and close the blinds. You know, like Quiet Place or Bird Box or any given zombie movie. But, you know, the movie Contagion was... If you look at the Wikipedia page for the movie Contagion, which is a very realistic kind of proceduralized movie about what would happen if the world faced a global pandemic that's incredibly deadly and is done in a very sort of dry, realistic way, the Wikipedia page has a new section for... It rose to the top of the, the download charts at the beginning of the pandemic of 2020, even though it came out 10 years ago. People were afraid and they wanted something to frame their experience with. And Contagion was that movie. The other, you know, big sort of, you know, epidemic pandemic movie that exists is um, Outbreak. And it's not very good and I don't recommend it. But, <laughs> um, but Contagion, there's something really scary about it, but also kind of reassuring about like, yeah, it's real. And it could get bad. It could get better. But, you know, there's going to be this period where you just sort of have to go through your life, uh, just go on with your life to the best of your abilities with these new constraints. And I think people found um, comfort in that sort of, like, we won't, we won't bullshit you. This happens. So that's movies about pandemic. Uh, there was this great movie made during the pandemic, um, which is told entirely through a Zoom call. <laughs> and it's one hour long, and it's on Shutter, and it's called Host. Not The Host, there are multiple movies called The Host, but the movie this year called Host. It's about a group of people who use Zoom to have a seance together, and then in all of their different locations at the same time, they become haunted. And it's really effective, and it's, it's also really unmetaphorical. It's really just in-your-face visceral scares. There's a lot of great jump scares. Um, but then every so often, you're reminded of, like, oh yeah, pandemic. Like, there's a scene where one character decides to, like, leave her home to try to help another character in her home that's like across the street and she puts on a mask it's like oh yeah that's when this is and i think it'll sort of stand the test of time for that um but also the fact that it it it, it makes you jump <laughs> i'm freaked out uh... <laughs> <laughs> and by the way i just want to say jump scares get a bad rap it's not about whether or not you use jump scares it's about if you use jump scares well mm -hmm. that's what, what i'll say on that okay sure so <laughs> <laughs> hey, a good jump scare is yes is no is one that is well placed when even though you're watching a horror movie you did not know what was coming it's that you didn't know what was coming but you knew something was coming like like the blood test and the thing so i i, I was watching probably the the like longest relationship i've had with a horror property is the hill house the haunting of hill house um, that came out a couple of years ago, and which I actually watched because it was right after the shooting in the Tree of Life synagogue, and I was like, well, this can't scare me now. <laughs> which is my attitude toward horror, I guess, but it turns out it was very scary, and at a certain point I stopped, like, because I, I was watching on my computer, I was like, I can't have any liquid around me because I might jump and destroy my computer. Oh, Hill House has one of the best jump scares in anything oh that it, it is so scary it, it, it's funny like so the there are like three kind of gold standard jump scares that exist and like two of them are from the 80s um and then one of them is from like 10 years ago but like the ones from the 80s there's one in the exorcist 3 which people are only just realizing is a good movie that's just a wide a wide shot of a hallway in a hospital like a nurse's station and we don't know why we're looking at this wide shot but we're holding on it and there's like nurses kind of like moving back and forth um you know doing their their duties and like carrying papers and whatever and we're just holding and holding and holding so that when the cloaked figure with the scissors like you know exits a room and goes after somebody else 
it gets you. But there's something about that waiting and not knowing where to look, but still kind of like there is a focal point. You're just not sure if that's where you meant, if that's where the action will happen. It's it's the anticipation that makes it work. Whereas if you have like the movie Pumpkinhead, which I do love, but it's also very silly in a lot of ways. There's a character who's sitting on a bed and we're just sort of looking at it in sort of a wide shot. And then a dog enters the frame and just goes up to him. It's not even like it jumps at us or it jumps at him. It just sort of enters the frame and he pets it. But there's a loud noise that accompanies it. And it's the funniest damn thing because that is not a scare. They thought that they could turn that into a scare by adding a noise to a dog walking up to somebody at, at, at a bed. And um, I think that's what people kind of react to when they decry jump scares with the sort of cheap, we know this will work because you don't like loud noises kind of jump scare, as opposed to the one where you are put into a situation where you feel unsafe and you feel like there is something that is going to happen to you, the viewer, and then it happens. Well, this was wonderful. Thank you so much for <laughs> <laughs> taking so much time. Michal is just extremely now, stressed I'm, out I'm just right thinking now. about the, the mini documentary. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll, I'll ask Jamie to put it in the notes. I, I've been, I've been, I've had a lot of imagery in my head <laughs> and um, it's, it's, this is definitely <laughs> both helped process it and also made it worse. Um, <laughs> 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 yeah, but so thank you so much for coming to speak with us, Abishai. Um, hopefully we can have you back again for possibly more industry discussion to have a long talk about. Well, I have I have a couple of other ideas about R and stuff um, that we could discuss. But in the meantime, where can people find you and your work? Um, people can find me being a bit of an ass on Twitter um, at AvishaiW. It's A V I S H A I W. And uh, the, if you want to see a short horror film that I made, um, the YouTube channel Alter um, A L T E R. Um, has my uh, my film school thesis called Third Date. That is sort of my most polished um, horror short film. But you can also watch Socks. Socks is really good. <laughs> I got a short film called Socks, which uh, I made with my sister in quarantine using it. It's also not unscary. <laughs> Loved it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, made that on uh, on an iPhone. Uh, so that was fun. Um but yeah, no, this this was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Awesome. And uh, SM, where can people find you on the internet? Um, you can find me on Facebook, or you can follow my public posts, and you can also find me um, on my Amazon author page, which is amazon.com slash author slash SM Rosenberg. Awesome. And Tamar, other than imminently halfway around the world, where can people find you? Uh, you can find my work compiled at tamarherman.com. You can go buy my book, BTS Blood, Sweat, and Tears, wherever you like buying books from. As for me, you can find me on Twitter at Ink as Rain. And you can find our wonderful editor, Jamie Bloomberg, on Twitter. Uh, that's twitter.com slash Jamie underscore Bloomberg. You can email them at jamievbloomberg at gmail.com or visit their website at jamberg.me. Yeah, and you can find us on Twitter at Jewish Fangirls. Uh, you can email us at nicejewishfangirls at gmail.com. We did get a really cool email that we are going to read in our next episode. Please leave us a review on iTunes if you haven't already. Five stars would be greatly appreciated. Yeah. Um, oh, also, yes, um, happy New York Comic Con, everyone. It's, it's virtual this year. Uh, we hope you enjoy the rest of the holidays and um, have are having a wonderful new year, such as it 
as it is. Live long and prosper, everyone.